Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, April 13. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Anikis Mathurst. Morning, Tom. And on today's briefing, we're looking at why paramedics are frustrated they're not saving more lives. What we're seeing is paramedics attending one or two cases in a 14-hour shift and spending the rest of the time in a hospital corridor. Ambulance services calling for change. That's our briefing in just a moment. First, here are the big news stories of the day. Princes Harry and William have paid tribute to Prince Philip ahead of their grandfather's funeral on Saturday. In a statement, Harry said the Duke was a master of the barbecue, legend of banter and cheeky right till the end. Harry's statement came moments after his brother William released a written message praising Philip's life of service. The pair will come face to face at the intimate funeral service on Saturday, um, which is the first time uh, since Harry left in March, former British Prime Minister John Major told the BBC he hopes it's a chance for the brothers to heal their rift. The friction that we are told has arisen is a friction better ended as speedily as possible. And a shared emotion, a shared grief at the present time, I think is an ideal opportunity. Harry flew in from the US yesterday and will spend five days in quarantine in London before taking a COVID test ahead of Saturday's funeral at Windsor Castle. Cyclone Saroja has blown the roofs off one in five houses in the Western Australian town of Kalbarri, according to Channel 9. 70% of the town's buildings have been damaged in some way, and thousands of residents in the district could remain without power for days. It seemed like an atom bomb went off and this crescendo of wind just exploded the glass falling doors in our faces. Yeah, intense. That's local resident Richard Burgess speaking to the ABC. Annika, we hear about cyclones a lot in WA, but often they don't do this kind of damage. Yeah, and usually they don't stretch as far as this one, so really unexpected. And that cleanup is getting underway now. But Premier Mark McGowan, despite the damage, has said he's really happy that no one died. No major injuries and no deaths. Uh, and that's obviously good news for those communities. So Saroja, which is now an ex-tropical cyclone, has already left WA, crossing the state's southern coast and heading right back out to sea yesterday afternoon. Taiwan says it's seen the biggest ever incursion of its airspace by China. The Taiwan Air Force scrambled aircraft yesterday after 18 Chinese fighter jets flew into its defence zone. There has been speculation China is preparing to invade Taiwan and tensions have been rising steadily. Beijing claims Taiwan is part of its sovereign territory. Yeah, Christopher Pine spoke about this yesterday. He's the former defence minister. He was speaking to an Adelaide Uni graduation ceremony and he warned that war in the region was a very real possibility. Most concerning of it all, it has turned up pressure on Taiwan, the most likely next flashpoint in the region. Yeah, and all this comes after strong comments from the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. He said he was concerned by China's increasingly aggressive actions directed towards Taiwan. A new report says overseas travel may not return to normal until 2024, Tom. Well, yeah, we were all excited about the New Zealand bubble, but there is the rest of the world. Um, Deloitte Access Economics quarterly business outlook says travel in and out of Australia will stay weak until 2022 and may not return to pre-pandemic levels until 2024. 
The report was released yesterday but was printed prior to the government's vaccination program being thrown into disarray last week. Wow, so the predictions could be even worse now. I found it interesting that Gladys Berejiklian came out, uh, the New South Wales Premier yesterday, pretty strongly on the delays to the vaccine rollout. Uh, She said that she knows some people don't feel there's a real urgency, but she thinks there is a real sense of urgency around the rollout. She fears we'll be left behind um, when the rest of the world opens up. And I have noticed, Annika, people I know overseas are travelling quite a lot still. So we've been focused on how well we've done here in Australia, but we are a bit of an anomaly with such tight border closures. Yeah, being an island state, we do manage to keep it out if we keep those borders closed. But I guess it's not really reality forever. So, look, I think Gladys Berejiklian uh, understands the sentiment of people that want to get on planes. But not only that, she mentioned that should there be an outbreak, things might change. We're in this position where we're not too worried about the vaccine yet and the timeline because we don't have any outbreaks. But if that were to change, I think people would be really worried and really keen to uh, line up and get that uh, jab. And in the US city of Minneapolis, uh, there are riots after a police officer shot a black man on Sunday. Protesters clashed with police and looted local businesses. The victim was named overnight as 20-year-old African-American Dante Wright. Yeah, so his family said he was shot after running from a car after being pulled over. Police say he got back in the car and tried to drive off. He died from his gunshot wounds yesterday. Now, this shooting occurred... Um, 16 Ks from where George Floyd was murdered in May last year, sparking the Black Lives Matter protests. Pretty intense scenes, Annika. Um, Clearly, there's still a lot of anger in that community. So these protests could really continue and and even grow. Yeah, former police officer Derek Chauvin is currently on trial in Minneapolis for Floyd's murder. Yeah, which I imagine will only add to the tension there around this latest shooting. In just a moment, uh, the problems faced by paramedics... Hey, maybe we don't say this often enough, but um, thank you for listening to The Briefing. And thank you for anyone who's gotten in touch via Instagram. We've been asking you to slide into our DMs lately, especially when you have something you want us to look into. Last week, a listener tipped us off about farmers wanting to be part of the effort to get to net zero emissions. And today we've got another very interesting message from a listener. What is it, Tom? Yeah, it says, hello, the briefing team. I'm a paramedic and a nurse in Victoria, and I want to shed some light on current working conditions. Post-COVID lockdowns, we've been exposed to the largest workload the Victorian hospitals have ever seen. As a paramedic, I often do three hours past my finish time and wait at hospital for a bed for my patient for up to five hours. So this means that ambulances are not on the roads where we need them most, Yesterday, I started my shift at 7am. I didn't get to eat lunch until 4pm. And we are the people you are trusting with your life. The emergency departments are full and the backflow is affecting the community. So that concern that paramedics are spending hours waiting outside emergency departments rather than back on the road responding to more emergencies is the topic of today's briefing. And following on from that message, we've found that this is not a problem that's just affecting Victorian Ambos. 
Yeah, that's right. In Queensland, the average ambulance response time uh, was 18.4 minutes last year, uh, which is a big jump on where they'd like it to be. Back in 2013-14, it was down at 14.7 minutes. So it's almost four minutes longer right now. And in Tassie, hospitals in both Hobart and Launceston have reported an increase in ramping in recent weeks. So let's keep moving around the country. We'll find out more about what's happening in Victoria, where our briefing listener message came from. Um, Danny Hill is the Secretary of the Victorian Ambulance Union. Danny, thanks for joining us. Is the challenge that our listener described in that message pretty common for paramedics in Victoria? I'd say the person you've spoken to is spot on and has probably reflected the uh, the working experience of pretty much everyone in the job at the moment, particularly in metropolitan Melbourne and the major regional centres like Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo and other major country towns. We have massive issues at the moment that we haven't seen probably since what we called the ambulance crisis back in 2012, 13, 14. And we really are seeing the sort of signs of the system being in complete overload right now. And uh, what that, that paramedic told you is is what everyone's telling us as well, is that they're not getting their meal breaks on their 10 to 14 hour shifts. They're regularly working three to four, five hours of incidental overtime at the end of their shift, which are already quite long. And they're transporting patients to hospital and unfortunately the hospitals are so overloaded that they don't have any beds. What happens there is that the paramedic crew are actually required to look after the patient in the corridor of the hospital. So they're in the hospital, they've taken the patient to the hospital, but the care is still with the paramedics until they can safely hand over the patient to the ED, the emergency department. So they're literally taking their ambulance gear from their vehicle into the corridor and they're, they're continuing to treat the patient as if they're out, you know, in a farm paddock or on the side of the road. In some states, we're also seeing a jump in code one call outs and it can be quite significant, especially in Victoria. So what is a code one call out and why do you think they've increased so dramatically? A code one call out is a case that requires a lights and sirens response. And the target for that case is that uh, 90% of the time, we need to get to those patients within 15 minutes. Part of what's happened is that we're still at the COVID battle stations. And during COVID-19, during the pandemic, people haven't been seeing their GP and taking care of their, you know, attending their regular health appointments. So if people have arthritis or diabetes or, you know, any other of many, many health conditions that they would see their GP or, or another a health professional for regularly, um, people's health is starting to actually suffer. So our members are telling us that they're going to patients who, you know, perhaps haven't been, um, you know, giving themselves the right sort of proactive self-care that, that we'd like to see. And that has a flow-on effect into the ambulance space because, and this includes mental health as well, rather than attending their regular appointments, they're actually, you know, getting into crisis mode, crisis stages and uh, entering the system through ambulance or through emergency department. So a lot of it will come back to the dispatching. So we have a, a dispatch system run by the Emergency Services Telecommunication Authority or ESTA that typically triage to the worst case scenario. And that means that pretty much everyone gets an ambulance unless it can be secondary triaged and revised down to a lower category. And that just doesn't work in a big public health system where um, you have limited resources, you have limited hospital beds, and really what we should be trying to organise across the workforce, across the health system is find the right pathway for the right patient. Not everyone should be coming into an emergency department, and I think our system is still very much, you know, in quite a primitive way, still geared towards that. 
to play devil's advocate here, when you sign up to be an AMBO, isn't there just going to be pressures? You know, this this is a really high-pressure sure. job by its very nature. So what could actually lessen the impact of that? Is it about pay? Is it about conditions? Or is it just that, you know, this is the nature of the job? I think you're right. Paramedics do sign up to a busy, high-pressure role. But what we're seeing is paramedics attending one or two cases in a 14-hour shift and spending the rest of the time in a hospital corridor. Now, one thing you'll never hear our paramedics do is complain when they're sent to patients that they're skilled to provide care to. So, you know, we're not seeing paramedics, you know, complaining that they're so busy because they're going to sick patients. Part of what they're so frustrated by is that they're being sent to either very low acuity patients that don't require any ambulance intervention at all, or they're being they're taking patients to hospital and they're not able to respond to another case. That's an enormous frustration. Certainly, um, paramedics not getting meal breaks, paramedics working incidental overtime is an enormous frustration. The job is very challenging when you get all your meal breaks and you get off on time every single shift. It's very challenging anyway. But mm. you know, you, we want our paramedics to have a, a long career so that they can keep treating patients and attending patients. But uh, really, it starts to eat into your work-life balance. It starts to affect your fatigue. It's not so much about pay, but it's about conditions, and it's about them having a, you know, the sort of work-life balance that other workers have, where they can, you know, for a short period of time, just switch off, um, take a break, and remove themselves from that pressure, so they can come back and continue uh, attending and treating patients. That was Danny Hill in Victoria. Now let's see how this problem is playing out in New South Wales. Yeah, there was an incident the weekend before last where there was this horrifying boat explosion on the Hawkesbury north of Sydney where the Burns victims had to wait over 25 minutes for an ambulance when there was a station just down the road. Chris Kastelin is president of the New South Wales branch of the Australian Paramedics Association. Chris, what happened on the Hawkesbury and what should have happened? There is an ambulance station within about five or six minutes travel time from uh, where that explosion took place. But unfortunately, like a lot of uh, ambulance crews are finding, is that that crew was not available. They'd been dragged up into a significant metropolitan area and had been um, completing jobs in another area and were stuck in uh, bed block or ramping, as some people like to call it. So were unable to respond to their area. Subsequently, the case went down on a different dispatch board, which just basically means a different person in a different area was controlling the job over the radio and cars then took a significant amount of time to get to that incident. And then something with nine patients and four that have been deemed to be critically ill at that point in time, delays like that can be the difference between a successful outcome and not as successful an outcome. And this is something that's really causing, uh, you know, paramedics all over concern is this uh, ramping or bed block where they're just not able to be relaxed least to go back out and provide that care to the community, which is the reason they get into the job in the first instance. We're seeing ramping rates go up across Australia and Tassie and Queensland and New South Wales and Victoria. Is this just because of COVID? What do you think has caused the current sort of crisis in ramping? 
Well, the hospital is a one-stop shop for most people and a lot of people in the community find it pretty challenging to get uh, timely uh, GPs appointments and then when they do get one, then they have to go to get scans or pathology or different tests done and for a lot of people, the hospital is very convenient because it is a bit of a a one-stop shop because of social issues. Some people might not have the ability to travel around the suburbs to get these tests as well and it makes it easier for them just to phone an ambulance over whatever uh, medical condition they are dealing with, whether it's an emergency or whether it's a low acuity case, and they find themselves up at the hospital with everybody else. But I don't really think there's any one real answer to that, why there's a lot of ramping and bed block. I think there's probably... um, dozens of answers to it and as yet we're yet to be able to find the solution to reduce it uh, not only in New South Wales but around the country it seems it's in the media pretty often. What is the impact on ambulance drivers and paramedics themselves? A lot of paramedics are finding that they're stuck in ramping issues for, for up to three to six hours and basically what that means is that that crew is not able to go out and respond to the area. Now, uh, it's happening in uh, metropolitan areas as well, but certainly regional areas uh, where their staffing and their resourcing is is much less significant than metropolitan areas. And a lot of paramedics in these small uh, regional uh, towns, um, if something happens and they can't respond, you've got to remember, they've got to walk down the street the next day and face the public and, and they're asking them, what, where were you? Why weren't you available to respond to that case? And it can be very um, psychologically tra- uh, challenging for these paramedics and it really does put a dent in their resilience. But our role is to go out and serve the community in a timely manner. And a lot of the times when you do get to a residence or somewhere where somebody's phoned triple zero, A lot of the times, the first question that comes out of their mouth is, why did it take so long? Where where did you come from? How come we've been waiting for 45 minutes? And you don't actually get trained to answer that question as a paramedic because most of your training is around uh, clinical skill sets and procedures and protocols. Um, So it it can be really challenging because you're on the back foot straight, straight off and you're making excuses for a system that doesn't seem to be working that well. Mm. And in our jurisdiction, we're currently currently running at probably the second slowest response times nationally. And for a a proud profession as paramedics, that's really concerning. That was Chris Castellan from the New South Wales Paramedics Association. It was interesting, Annika, to hear, I guess, that frustration and almost like a sadness for these professional paramedics turning up to a job and then the patient says, what took you so long? Yeah, that must be incredibly difficult to hear, especially when you're trained to help people when needed and that's not sitting around the halls of a hospital I would have thought Mm. so hopefully you know we can do something about this it does sound like the issue tends to be at the hospital that's where the real pressure point is because as we know and as Danny said to us this is naturally a really stressful environment so there is an acknowledgement of that but what they really want to be doing is out there saving lives. Some of your questions were sort of getting to this broader point that we often hear about ambulance paramedics being overworked or underpaid, but this issue seems different. They're frustrated at not being able to work effectively and efficiently. Tomorrow on The Briefing, what progress have we made since the Indigenous Deaths in Custody report 30 years ago? Listener.